0: you <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen welcome back to the show my name is Tanner and it is good to be with you again If you're new to the show I want to say welcome and if you have been here a while I want to say welcome back It's been a little bit since we've seen each other and I'm happy to see you again thanks for coming back this is our fourth episode in our Conflict of Nations series where we explore the most complicated series of events in human history leading from the fields of Waterloo all the way to the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991. It's a lot of complicated jargon, but we're having a good time doing it. Now, I would like to explain my, my uh, month-long absence recently. It's mostly just because I work a full-time job and I go to school and I have other personal projects I've been working on and I, things just kind of get out of hand occasionally. But I have been researching, I've been studying, and I'm back with this episode. We're going to keep doing this series. I am not done. Let's just keep going here. But before we start, remember, this podcast is listener-supported, so if you enjoy the podcast and you want to really let me know how much, head over to Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened on Anchor.fm. Now, you can only find this page on Anchor.fm. The link is in the podcast description. And there, there will be a button that will lead you to a page where you can donate cash to the podcast to let me know that you're enjoying what you're hearing. That would mean a lot to me, and it does give me a lot of encouragement when I see people donate to the podcast. But if you feel you do not have the means to donate to some guy on the internet's podcast, you can head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and drop me a five-star review to let me know that you care. That would actually mean the world to me, and it gets more people involved with the conversations about history. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Well, let's just get started, why don't we? When we last left off, in 1878, France was in tatters following the abdication of Napoleon III and the back-breaking conclusion of the Franco-Prussian War. Germany had united under Otto von Bismarck into the first German Empire. Italy had acquired Venice from Austria to make themselves a united Italy for the first time ever. Russia had beaten the Ottoman Empire as revenge for the Crimean War as well as establishing themselves as the prime influencer over the Balkan states. And the brand new Austro-Hungarian Empire was harboring some serious resentment toward them for it. Europe was more or less, stable. Meaning there were no wars going on at the moment. And, I'm just going to get this out of the way right now, with the exception of a brief war between Serbia and Bulgaria, there would be no more large-scale conflicts in Europe for the next quarter century. Nope. Sorry guys. No wars in this episode. In Europe, at least. After the numerous wars of the 1800s, as the century came to a close, Europe elected instead to take a collective breather, if you will, and work on rebuilding their nations from the painful wounds suffered from these conflicts. So, let's jump to each one of these countries and take a quick look at how they're doing. France, after a period of relative anarchy, established the Third French Republic, which, while not extremely popular, at least it wasn't a monarchy... They drafted a new constitution, established free and secular public education, revamped newspaper circulation, and modernized the populace. They began rebuilding their shattered nation. The new German Empire had already drafted their constitution, establishing a monarchy with an emperor at the top. Some of their first main objectives were establishing railways and canals to join the various states of their new empire, as well as issuing new forms of currency, creating telegraph lines, and forming new trade routes. Also, their military was being trained and maintained profusely. The freshly unified nation of Italy drafted their own constitution and focused on freedom of the press, freedom of religion, and granted the rights of habeas corpus. It is time... For a definition, what is habeas corpus? Habeas corpus is a term that was coined in medieval Europe, but is still used in the modern day. The original medieval Latin meaning is, We, a court, command that you have the body of the detainee brought before us doesn't really explain a whole lot right now because the term is used a little bit differently than it used to be used, but the term grew to represent a recourse in law through which a person can report an unlawful detention or imprisonment to a court and request that the court order the custodian of the person, usually a prison official, to bring the prisoner to the court to determine whether the detention is lawful. By the late 1800s, this meant that no citizen protected by the rights of habeas corpus could be arrested or imprisoned without a written and approved reason. So to dumb that down, you can't be arrested because you said something the government didn't like, and if you felt that you were imprisoned unjustly, you could petition the court to bring in a third and neutral party to decide if the imprisonment was unjust. So, Italy was working toward democratization and making its populace feel secure. It established a Senate and a Chamber of Deputies, which you can loosely compare to the United States House of Representatives. The government also rapidly caught up to the Industrial Revolution taking place in other parts of Europe and heavily industrialized Northern Italy, though it did neglect Southern Italy, which... Quickly became overpopulated and underdeveloped, fueling a mass exodus of migrants from Italy to other parts of the world, creating an Italian diaspora. If you want a definition for a diaspora, check my World War III Great African War episode. I've got a great, great definition in there. But this is why we have movies like The Godfather. Austria-Hungary was experiencing some blended family dynamics, with ethnic Austrians and ethnic Hungarians vying for positions of power while also trying to assimilate the freshly occupied Bosnians, Croatians, and Slovenes into their ranks. The union between Austria and Hungary had come about after the Austrian defeat at the hands of the Prussians, pre-German Empire, when Austria and Hungary knew that if either of them wanted to enjoy the status as a great power, they'd have to do it together. So, Austria-Hungary was born, though it was a dual monarchy in which two kings ruled over Austria and Hungary, respectively. But the nation adopted liberal economic policies which paved the way for industrialization. This kept them up to pace with the rest of Europe. As I stated in the last episode, Austria-Hungary's first act of foreign policy was to condemn Russian expansionism in the Balkan states, which was sowing the seeds of bitterness that would exist between both nations for decades. The Russian Empire was basking in the glory of its latest victory over and revenge upon the Ottoman Empire. Nationalism was restored in the country, and its expanding industrial efforts were fueling its rise to, once again, solidify itself as a world's power. But something was starting in Russia that we're going to take a quick look at, because right now, we're seeing the roots of two conflicts that would shape the world and last until the present day. First of all, in March of 1881, Alexander III ascended to to the throne of Russia as the Tsar of the Imperial Nation. He was barely 36 when he became Tsar, which is relatively young when you think about it, but this was because his father, Alexander II, was victim of a politically motivated assassination. At this time, Russia held claim to areas such as Poland and Lithuania, which held large Jewish populations, and anti-Jewish sentiment had been growing in Russia for the better part of the century ever since their annexation in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Why? Mostly because the Russian Orthodox Church was one of the leading powers in Russia, and they were Christian. And what's the main Christian belief? Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of all mankind, and so on and so forth. The Jewish belief is that while Jesus was a good guy, a great guy even, he was not the Savior of all mankind, and God has yet to send a Savior to the earth. That's a pretty fundamental divide. While the Russian Orthodox Church decided that it wanted dominion over the hearts and minds of the people, it had to suppress the Jews as quickly and efficiently as possible. And this is where the infamous Russian pogroms come into play. What's a pogrom? A pogrom is a violent riot aimed at the massacre or expulsion of an ethnic or religious group, particularly one aimed at the Jewish population. This is a Slavic term and was coined in the 1800s during these events that take place at this point in our story. So Alexander II was assassinated by a political extremist group. The Russian government blames the Jews and capitalizes on the anti-Semitism that the Russian Orthodox Church had been breeding for decades, and you get a series of tragic pogroms in the Russian Empire starting in 1881. In April of 1881, just after Orthodox Easter, a series of riots breaks out across the southwestern province of Russia in what is now mostly Ukraine, And an infamous three-day riot takes place in Kiev, where the majority of the Jewish population is driven out of the city altogether, and the Russian army has to be sent in to quell the unrest. Ramifications of this riot resounded throughout Russia, and pogroms continued through the rest of the summer, and even sporadically for years afterward. If you've ever seen The Fiddler on the Roof, this is what's happening at that point in the story. So, anti-Semitism is growing in Russia and becoming a significant problem. We're going to check back in here periodically for the next few episodes, because we're we're seeing a major conflict starting to take root. Second, some of the ideas that had become somewhat popular in France in the mid-1800s had found their way over to Russia, and several groups of Russians had taken up the mantle of a relatively new form of idealized economics known as Socialism. Two fellows, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, had done a bit of writing in the mid-1800s and collaborated on a bit of societal critique. Nothing too fancy. You might have heard of it. It's called the Manifesto of the Communist Party, otherwise known as THE COMMUNIST MANIFESTO! I just learned how to do that. Pretty cool, huh? Well, the ideas of the Communist Manifesto had spread like wildfire through mainland Europe and had resounded notably well with the Russian people, who were becoming disenfranchised with the rapid industrialization of the nation. A small percentage of peasants in Russia became infatuated with the ideas of socialism and communism, with Marxist calls for the end of class warfare and the redistribution of the bourgeois land and wealth among the peasants. Though they still only made up an extreme minority, the ideas were reaching new ears and Russians seemed to be the first people since the Paris Commune to really take matters into their own hands. We're going to keep an eye on these ones too. They're feisty, and they might just change the world. All the way to the other side of Europe, we're going to jump right over to meet two characters who have played a minimal part in our story up to this point. Spain and Portugal, siblings on the Iberian Peninsula. We saw them in action during the time of Napoleon, but they've been focusing on internal affairs up to this point, and they're about to jump back into international politics. For pretty much the rest of this episode, we're talking about a little thing called New Imperialism. Though New Imperialism had been around since, uh, give or take, the 1860s, what we're looking at specifically here starts in 1884, in a meeting of world leaders in the capital of the new German Empire, and that was going to shape the future of the continent of Africa. When we come back... We're going to talk about the Berlin Conference of 1884, the scramble for Africa, and the colonization of, essentially, the entire planet. Berlin, 1884. 20 representatives from 14 different nations meet up in Berlin to discuss matters of imperialism. Specifically, who was allowed to colonize what? Why? Why? Up to this point, colonies were basically finder's keepers. If you established a colony, it was yours to keep as long as you could maintain it. If someone else wanted it, they'd have to fight you for it. Spain, Portugal, and Britain knew all about this, but for the most part, Spain, Britain, and Portugal were the major players in the colonial world up to this point. Now, Europe wasn't really at war anymore... But they were all eyeing potential colonial possessions across the globe, and they figured they should probably sit down and decide where each nation was allowed to colonize. But again, why? Look at it this way. Colonial competition had led to several destructive wars. Europe had experienced more than 20 major wars in the century preceding this conference, and they didn't really want to do another one. If they could play nice for just a few months to draw up colonial borders, and I'll promise to be real cool about it, everyone could get colonies and everyone would avoid wars. So that's what they did. Between 1884 and 1885, representatives from France, Germany, Austria, Hungary, Russia, Sweden, Belgium, Spain, Portugal, Italy, Denmark, the Netherlands, the Ottoman Empire, and even the United States drew up colonial borders all over the world and designated each territory as a future colonial possession for specific countries. Important to note, none of these colonial possessions were asked ahead of time if they were cool with being a colonial possession. The main focus, however, was Africa. Several countries had already attempted to stake their claims in Africa, and the Berlin Conference was simply to clarify these boundaries. France got most of the Western Sahara Desert, including Morocco, Algeria, Chad, Mali, and Senegal. Britain got Egypt, Sudan, Northern Somalia, South Africa, Nigeria, and a few others. Belgium got the Congo. Spain got a small territory in the Western Sahara. Portugal got Angola and Mozambique. Germany got Cameroon, Namibia, Tanzania. And Italy got Libya, Eritrea, Ethiopia, and Southern Somalia. But unfortunately for Italy... Ethiopia was not keen on being colonized and would pretty much say, get off my lawn to Italy when it came knocking, but that's a story for another podcast. Europe quickly set about establishing their colonial presence in Africa, exploiting its natural resources and native workforces to the fullest and, in many cases, most horrific way possible. Because this podcast series is centered on the events and international relationships that paved the way for the world wars, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on exploitation. But suffice it to say that one of the reasons behind much of Africa remaining part of the third world in the modern day is this exploitation that happened between 1884 and 1914, and the suppression of local populations that also happened there. A lot of sad stories happened there. But outside of Africa, the colonial race continued to heat up. Spain and Portugal were centuries ahead of the colonial game, but each of their empires had fallen on hard times. Britain had gained the spot as the dominating colonial power of the world, controlling India and Burma, South Africa, Australia, Canada, and portions of China. France had begun gaining ground in its efforts to catch up. If you remember from the last episode, Napoleon III had established colonies in Vietnam and Morocco, and in the late 1800s, these colonies expanded to include Laos and Cambodia, as well as the majority of the Western Sahara Desert. Now, the Netherlands were staking their claims in Indonesia, christening it as the Dutch East Indies. Russia expanded into the Middle East, claiming Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, also establishing a sphere of influence over Iran. The United States established a foothold in the Philippines, Hawaii, Guam, and Puerto Rico. Germany grabs a hold of an area on the northeastern coast of China, as well as sections of Papua New Guinea and Samoa. At this point, a few notable nations in the east start to throw their hats into the imperial ring. And finally, we get to start talking about China and Japan. China and Japan were rapidly modernizing, though they'd been laggards in the industrial militarization scene due to Japanese long-standing tradition of the samurai and Chinese absence of a middle-class workforce, the imperialist fever that swept through the globe did not catch these two countries napping. Japan had recently opened its borders during the Meiji Restoration Go ahead and listen to my Nintendo episode if you want more details on, on that and China had been buying guns and artillery from Europe for years After the humiliation suffered by the Chinese due to the British during the Opium Wars China was ready to show what it was made of and Japan was eager to demonstrate its imperial capabilities to earn it a spot on the world stage Japan started first annexing islands in 1869 starting with hokkaido the northern island of modern-day japan less than a decade later It claimed the bonin islands, which had previously been claimed by the british These were the islands lying in the pacific southeast of japan including the island of iwo jima Soon after they claimed the rukyu islands, which is the chain of islands to the southwest of japan leading to taiwan Japan wanted taiwan, too but China had been busy with its own colonial efforts, claiming Taiwan and Pengu, which was the archipelago of islands between Taiwan and the Chinese mainland. Japan believed Taiwan was the key to its status as a true imperial power, but these were China's only two offshore holdings, so they did the only logical thing, and they had a war. The first Sino-Japanese war ever. Japan won pretty easily. As a result, Japan gained control of Taiwan and Pangu and even established a sphere of influence over the Korean peninsula. So I think I've said sphere of influence twice in this episode, but I'm also pretty sure I've said it before without explaining what it means. So what is a sphere of influence? A sphere of influence is a country or area in which another country has power to affect developments, although it has no formal authority. Basically... Big Country is Big Brother, Little Country is Little Brother, and Big Brother is teaching Little Brother how to play sports. Little Brother will only learn what Big Brother teaches and will play the game how Big Brother wants. So we end up here in the year 1900 and borders that originally existed only in Europe now exist all over the globe. On the Saudi Peninsula, Ottoman borders meet directly with British territories. In Southeast Asia, only Thailand separates British India and French Indochina. In Africa, the German colony of Cameroon is surrounded on all sides by British and French holdings. Borders that had existed more or less for hundreds of years had grown to become normal in continental Europe, but now these brand new borders had been drawn, and it remained to be seen if the various powers in Europe were going to respect them or if they had other plans. And that's going to do it for the episode today, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in. I will be back as soon as I possibly can with part five. We are almost to World War One. We are officially in the 20th century. So, you know what that means. It's almost crazy time. Next time, we're going to be focusing primarily on the unrest that's happening in the Balkan states, the two Balkan wars, and the true emergence of modern Balkan nationalism. It's going to get real wild. I hope you're there for it. So, I'll catch you next time. If you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a five-star review and even leave me a nice comment if you feel so inclined. And remember, the podcast is listener-supported feel free to donate. I will catch you all next time on Tanner Talks about stuff that happened. I'm signing off for this time. Got a couple papers to do. Catch y'all later.